Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. The issue of free speech won't go away. Uh, we've had a number of shows focusing on the rights and wrongs of free speech, of open inquiry, of so-called cancel culture in America in the hot summer of 2020. And somebody else now is adding their distinguished name to the debate. Uh, Suzanne uh, Nossel is the CEO of PEN America and the author of a really interesting new book, Dare to Speak, um, Defending Free Speech for All. Uh, Suzanne, uh, what's the case against free speech? Is there one? There is one. I mean, I mean the most potent case I would say right now against free speech is that it um, is a smokescreen for hatred and that as part of our drive to bring about a more equal, inclusive, anti-racist society, we need to expunge hateful, noxious, and bigoted speech so that everybody can feel at home, you know, in this society, uh, that people aren't subject to damaging, demeaning speech. You know, we just had uh, this debate between Alessandria Ocasio-Cortez and Representative Yoho from Florida, you know, over denigrating speech and, and the impact that it can have on an individual not just personally, but also societally and on a whole category of people like women. So the argument that has emerged, particularly as such speech has been uncorked through our society and enabled and legitimized, including by the president of the United States, is that something needs to be done. And if that means people have to cede their free speech rights, that it's worth it because we're going to have a more just society. So I think that's the most powerful argument. And it's not one to dismiss or take lightly. I think we have to take seriously concerns over the impact of speech. I don't think the answer is banning or punishing it, but that doesn't mean speech can't cause harm. Suzanne, as I mentioned in the introduction, you're the CEO of PEN America. Does this give you a, a, a special place to be uh, writing a book about free speech and taking positions on free speech? What are you seeing as the CEO of PEN America that other people don't see? Yeah, sure. You know, I would say it's certainly informed the thinking in the book at a number of different levels. First of all, we do a lot of work all over the world, including in repressive regimes, and we see the consequences of empowering governments and giving them license to suppress speech, which they inevitably use in very self-serving ways to quash dissent, muzzle criticism, go after their detractors. And you know, to me, that always reinforces the importance of our First Amendment and the prohibitions that we have in this country on government intrusions on speech. You know, we've also done a lot of work over the last few years, in particular, on free speech on college campuses. And that has been eye-opening because I've encountered a rising generation that is somewhat skeptical of free speech. They like the idea of free speech and they generally support it, but when they witness 
incidents on campus, racial slurs, nooses being hung in trees, snide remarks uh, against people on the basis of gender or race. You know, they come to wonder, you know, whether free speech is really something that uh, gets used as a shield to protect those who are perving bigotry. And so it's been very important in the course of that work to hear out their argument and to think about how to frame free speech in ways that this rising generation can understand and see as consonant with rather than inimical to their social justice goals. Uh, Suzanne, we had Connor uh, Friedrichsdorf from the uh, uh, Atlantic magazine on, who's, who's quite a critic in some ways of cancel culture, particularly on campus. Uh, has it gone too far in the American university? Is the is the censorious culture uh, coming, particularly within the the humanities? Is it endangering free speech? You know, I think it it definitely goes too far in certain instances. I mean, one of the things I talk about in the book, uh, Dare to Speak, is the importance of intent and context in evaluating speech. And so the idea that these are really pretty fact-specific determinations if you're trying to understand whether the use of the N-word in class, you know, is a, a racist act or perhaps, uh, you know, a professor who was quoting something from literature or teaching a uh, lesson about the law and, you know, maybe has used this in the past as a pedagogical thing and, you know, uh, had absolutely no intent of offending anyone. I think you treat those two situations very differently. And I think there is a kind of tendency right now to lose sight of that and to impose more of a sort of strict liability for speech. If you say something that offends others, you ought to be held accountable for the full extent of the hurt and harm that they feel, regardless of what you had in mind meant to say, the context. And I think that's a mistake. I think we need to stick to fact-specific determinations and evaluations of speech and you know, recognize that mores are changing and that you know, not everybody got the memo as quickly as they should. I also think, and I talk about in the book, that there's a responsibility on the flip side to be conscientious with language, to recognize that if you have a powerful platform, that comes along with a duty of care to understand your audience, to stay on top of changing societal norms and taboos. So I think it goes both ways, but I definitely do see a danger in this kind of censorious impulse that, you know, the, the first and only response to offensive speech is to try to ban and punish it. And what I argue for in the book is that, you know, we need to take it seriously, but there are a whole series of other things that we can be doing in response that don't have a chilling effect. I'm going to put my glasses on now because I'm quoting from the book. At the beginning, you say, and I, I want to explore this, you say the value, uh, values of equality, you say how free speech can be protected without running roughshod over values of equality. That seemed to me, uh, you're, you're a trained lawyer, uh, Suzanne, a, a Harvard law grad. It's your way of saying that values of equality might have the same values, so to speak, as freedom of speech. Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, look at it. They're both in our Bill of Rights. I think they're both, uh, you know, embedded in the U.S. Constitution. You know, we're a society that believes uh, that people should be treated equally and should have equal opportunities. And there are ways in which speech sometimes can impinge upon that. So, you know, to me, the free speech and equality and inclusion are both essential to American society, to our democracy. And that's why it's so important in my mind that we find ways of 
reconciling them and, and, and demonstrating how they can fit together rather than being at odds with one another. Aren't you fudging though here, Suzanne, once you introduce these values of equality, doesn't that almost inevitably begin to compromise the ideals of free speech? I don't think so. I mean, I've really tried to explain how it doesn't, you know, and, and to explain in the book how you can have and sustain robust, uncompromising protections for freedom of speech and still alongside that be working to advance equality and inclusion. And it doesn't mean uh, suggesting that hateful speech is insignificant. Uh, you know, I, it's just approaching it, addressing it in ways other than bans and suppression through things like counter speech, dialogue, education, the reinforcement of social taboos, voluntary restraint on speech, which I think uh, has been talked about. It goes back to the, in the Penn Charter, they talk about the importance of voluntary constraint as sort of an element of free speech that you don't say absolutely everything that comes to mind and nobody ever does. And yeah, there's a good reason for that. And so there's a boundary line between that voluntary restraint and the kind of censorious that comes from without. And I, I you know, I, I really believe fundamentally we have to reconcile these values and that uh, we can sustain robust protections for free speech. People need to understand why it's important. I think one reason the argument has lost ground in recent years is that we are not doing a very good job explaining to school children, university students, you know, why it is that we protect free speech in the, per in the first place and what the dangers are of empowering government to, to restrict it and what free speech enables in terms of a, a vibrant, dynamic society, the flourishing of creativity, individuals being able to live out their own identities and truths as they please, and you know, all the social goods that come from protecting free speech, which to my mind are very reinforcing with the goals of social justice movements. Uh, Suzanne, you're the CEO of PEN America, but I don't think you've ever been a professional writer. Uh, I assume the book itself has supplemented your income, but you don't live, so to speak, by your pen. In an interesting um, op-ed this morning in, in the New York Times, David Brooks argues that contrarians won't get jobs anymore at American uh, newspapers or magazines. He would. He argues that Christopher Hitchens, who always gets brought up as a, as the 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 sort of platonic version of a contrarian, would have would have would 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 be unemployed at the moment or unemployable. And he cites people like Andrew Sullivan, who have lost their jobs because of their supposedly offensive views. Um, in your support of free speech, I'm not sure that the kind of vision you have lends itself to contrarianism. Is that fair? Well, I talk in the book about the importance of voicing even unpopular ideas and the imperative to defend people's right to voice speech, even, even that which you disagree with. And I actually do think it's extremely important that we hold open space for the expression of unorthodox, unpopular contestable views and that there's a, there is a real danger, I agree right now, that it just seems too fraught. There's too much of a chance of blowback. The online hostility can be so noxious. And I think the temptation to just clam up or stick to, uh, you know, more mainstream, 
consensus kinds of topics is real. I mean, I sometimes feel it myself. You know, do I want to go there? How are people going to react to the arguments in this book? You know, people certainly, some people will certainly disagree with them. You know, and what, what may I be exposed to on the basis of that? So I think as free speech defenders, we need to kind of fortify one another uh, and, and sort of the, the, the will to speak up and the space to speak up and create forums for it. I think we need our newspapers and magazines to hold fast in their willingness to stand by controversial speech. And you know, we've seen, I think, a fair amount of wavering on that uh, in, in, in recent days, months, and years, also by universities. You know, and it's tough to do. It's tough to withstand the pressure and the outrage. And I think there needs to be more solidarity and more determination and more explanation of why defending even unpopular views is extremely important because the next time the unpopular view being silenced, you know, maybe your own. This is going to make me very unpopular with you, Suzanne, at least, is I, um, I'm destroying your book. I, I, I tore out the last page and you have a, a five bullet explanation of why we defend free speech in the first place. And I thought this was an excellent summary of your argument. Do you want to very briefly go through those five points of, of why, why the defense of free speech is so essential for, for the good society? Yeah, sure. You know, first off, uh, it has to do with the search for the truth and the ability to sort truth from falsehood and the idea that if you have open discourse, that ideas that are faulty or misguided or propagandistic will, will be exposed, that people will come up and rebut them and refute them, that new evidence can come to the foreground, that even if you know, the leader of a country or the powerful subscribe to a certain idea, that you're protecting the potential for others to come forward and, and prove why it's wrong. And that, to me, is extremely important for societal progress. Yeah, this, uh, I, also... I think you probably managed to offend some of the postmodernists watching Suzanne who, who may question the very idea of truth. You think that that exists and that we're moving towards it in a, in a coherent narrative? Not perfectly, but I certainly think, uh, you know, we can identify issues, you know, right now, uh, police violence on the uh, race, race-based violence is one. You know, the movement for uh, gay marriage is another where there were widely held orthodoxies in recent years that have been upended through expression and, you know, and sometimes legal challenges and other things as well. But uh, are there truths, Suzanne, that offend you, do you think, or that might offend our audience who will probably be more in your camp politically? Are there truths that offend me? Well, you bring up the truth of sexual diversity or the police violence in Portland, but are there truths that you, you may find chilling or uncomfortable? Well, I talk in the book about a touchy issue, which is, you know, the question of differences between, you know, sort of health-related differences between the races and that there is a, a, a real uh, sort of leeriness on the part of scientists and, and medical doctors to get into that because it can so easily veer into racist and theories. And I understand that. And those theories have been so damaging historically that I think there's a great tendency to just want to wash your hands entirely. And yet there are also scientists and, and epidemiologists who recognize there are certain physiological 
traits and characteristics that really are important to diagnosing and treating disease that we need to be able to look at. And so we've got to be able to sort of maintain that line to not deny or shut down this whole line of inquiry, but also be vigilant to make sure that it doesn't veer into pseudoscience and uh, eugenics and other noxious theories. So, you know, I think that's a, that's a good example of where, mm. you know, how we sort of police this line is very important. And there can be a propensity sort of understandable to go too far, but that has negative effects as well. Uh, we may need to get Steven Pinker on the show. He's been castigated by some people for his, uh, some of his thoughts in that area. Uh, but, and, and this, and, and, and Pinker's ideas actually touch on your second bullet as well about free speech promoting tolerance and lessening violence. That seems almost ironic in our, in our age of intolerance and at least verbal violence, but you stick to that. Free speech is, is on the side of pacifism. Well, I think if you compare it to, you know, wide-scale physical violence and war, that the ability to deliberate the existence of safety valves through which people can express themselves, you know, even the ability of Americans to go out on the streets and protest and, and, and carry signs and chant, I think over the last few months was extremely important. You know, if you had, if you didn't have that protection and if Pre President Trump had been able to just round people up in Lafayette Park, as it seemed he would have wished to do, you know, I think we would have seen very possibly explosive violence in this country, which we have not. And so, you know, I actually, I really believe that. Uh, the third bullet is about free speech being essential to individual autonomy, identity, and self-actualization. Uh, what, what, what is the connection between free speech and, and what you call self-actualization? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'd say for me, what really brought this home was a report that we did at PEN America some years ago about the suppression of LGBT speech in Nigeria and the fact that identity was essentially punished, that people couldn't write stories about their lives or poems or journalism or even have open discussion about, you know, who they loved or how they chose to live their life. And that has an incredibly corrosive effect on the self. And, you know, I, I believe that. And if there is robust protection for free expression, you know, those sort of identities that may in a certain culture be considered deviant or improper have some space to be expressed. And I think for people, uh, you know, who are inhabiting those identities, that protection is incredibly important. Uh, your fourth one is, I think, quite controversial. You say that protections for free speech foster economic prosperity, scientific progress, and creative achievement. But what about the, the China or even the Singapore model? Um, and in fact, America perhaps is the reverse. Some people would argue there's too much free speech here, which has undermined economic development. Uh, how does that work in terms of China, given that it is the economic power on the rise and that the that, that the Singapore model of, 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 of absence of free speech and economic development seems to be ever more attractive to developing countries? Well, I mean, it's a fair question. Look, uh, you know, 15 or 20 years ago, there was sort of this article of faith that as China rose economically, you know, there would be an unavoidable propensity for it to loosen up and liberalize and become more politically free and that becoming a capitalist system would 
sort of demand that and exert a pull in that direction. And they've really resisted that quite remarkably and had great economic success paired with unrelenting suppression of free speech. And so, you know, I think you're right to ask the question. I still believe fundamentally that uh, that system is very unstable and brittle. And we see that now in Hong Kong with this standoff in the new national security law and individuals, writers, creatives, considering whether to exit the territory, uh, corporations now clamping down on the speech of their employees. And, you know, I don't think it's a linear relationship necessarily. And I do think I agree with you, sort of China's rise sort of challenges this paradigm, you know, I believe ultimately, you know, what they are forced to do in order to stay in power is going to undercut their economic growth. Uh, and, you know, there are also huge swaths of people. Let's look at the Tibetans, the Uyghurs, whose, you know, creativity, dynamism, you know, economic possibility, ability to in- innovate is completely suppressed. And so, you know, I, I think that needs to count on the ledger as well. Suzanne, I just wrote a book about, uh, not wrote a book, that was a, a Freudian area. I just made a movie about democracy called How to Fix Democracy. And one of the scenes was shot in London at the foot of the statue of John Stuart Mill, just, just up the river from, from Parliament. Um, and, and, and there's a strong million element, I think, to your book. Uh, Mill's classic on liberty, of course, is still the intellectual liberal bedrock of, um, of free speech. And your fifth point sort of summarizes the million element to your argument. You say safeguards for free speech have been essential to virtually every form of social progress attained by democracies. Uh, isn't that a rather 19th century idea, social progress, this notion of history being this linear force moving forward and that to ensure to 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 oil the wheels of progress we need to allow everyone free speech look you know i think the statement stands whether it's the civil rights movement the women's rights movement the lgbt rights movement the movement for climate justice you know all of those have been made possible by free speech protections and in each case there have been efforts to suppress and silence and ultimately whether it's courts or public opinion or the media have stood in the way of those muzzling attempts you know that doesn't mean that free speech guarantees steady you know untrammeled progress on all fronts but that where there is human will to achieve that progress the ability of individuals to express themselves to organize to persuade others is essential to realizing those goals. So free speech is, is necessary, but I'm not saying it's sufficient. I was probably very unfair, Suzanne, to impose John Stuart Mill on you, at least okay. in symbolic terms. And his book on liberty, if there is one book I would recommend people read about free speech, it's Mills on Liberty. I would also suggest, by the way, that they read your new book, Dare to Speak, which is a marvelous combination of uh, legal erudition and, 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 and commercial uh, know-how and, 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 and real-world experience. You're also in the Obama administration. You have some great stories about your experience there overseas. Uh, finally, Suzanne, in addition to, to, New York, to your new book, Dare to Speak, 
and of course my my uh, my support for for mills on liberty what else should people read on this subject as we're all stuck inside we've got lots of time to read and as the ceo of pen i'm sure you're not shy to recommend other people's books Sure. Well, I'll recommend two things. One is uh, Masha Gessen's Surviving Autocracy, which is a kind of bracing summation of what we face and the stakes that uh, are before us in this country, uh, standing ahead of this fork in the road that uh, we will approach in November. And then something to look forward to that comes out in September is Ayad Akhtar's Homeland Elegies, which is a kind of autofiction uh, story about a Muslim American playwright and uh, a just really unvarnished, uh, hilarious, and very poignant look at what that ca character confronts in sort of 21st century United States and uh, uh, just a gripping read. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.